What's happening, Rodney? Cream of tartar. Mm. <laughs> like, uh, the first thing I think of is soup and teeth. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like uh, cream of tartar. But it's a, it's a powder. It's apparently a byproduct of winemaking. Mm. And it's really, really high in potassium. And because I play around with the keto thing, like potassium, magnesium, sodium can be low at times. So I take this cream of tartar and put it in my apple cider vinegar drink, which I like to talk about on here because you know how I like my ACV. Throw it in there and make sure my potassiums is good. You know what I'm saying? Mm. It doesn't taste like it tastes like talcum. And I don't know what <laughs> talcum tastes like. So I don't know why I just said that. I don't either. Maybe chalk. <laughs> but hey, you know. When you need your potassium, make it happen. I can't eat because I can't eat the banana because it's too sugary. Mm. Hello, what's happening? What it is? What does it do? Welcome back to the More in Common podcast. My name is Rodney. I'm here with the one and only Keith. What's hey, happening? hey, y'all. I'm not as spunky as Rodney, but I am here to remind you about our mission to inspire human connection by anchoring humanity and compassionate conversation. And the key word in all that for us is this idea of compassion. Compassion to us is something that we all deserve simply because we're human because we all have this shared human experience of struggle difficulty happiness sadness joy elation love and as a result we all deserve a little compassion it doesn't mean you need to agree with somebody it doesn't mean your soul is suddenly the other person's soul and even if you just disdain everything that they think that suddenly you become them it just means that you got to give a little compassion and so this here in our podcast is our exploration of our journey and compassion, practicing it, demonstrating it in hopes that we can all learn from the people we talk to and, and really practice our own compassion for others. And today we're talking to Miss Leona Maple. That's right. I met Leona online a little over a year ago in uh, the the. Uh, tabletop role-playing game world and quickly had an affinity for her just because of how she moves through spaces, how she creates safety and, and getting to know a little bit more about her. Like that's what she does. And we talk about that today. We talk about how you create or how she specifically creates safe spaces for marginalized groups. Uh, we talk about her background. She is a confident, strong I'll say soft, but like compassionate soft. Like she just gives a damn about people mm. and that comes through. And she also believes in herself. That's something that every single time I talk to her, I take away like, yo man, believe in yourself because you can do big things. I gotta be honest. Like if, if the world would introduce us all that way, I think we would all believe in ourselves a little bit more. That was, that was awesome. But before we get to Leona, I have to remind you that you can find all things at moreincommonent.com, moreincommonent.com. You can find all things about us that you may want to know and all our past guests. So today is about Leona Maple. Let's get to it. 
Parts of my, my family, ancestrally, you know, decide to move to different British colonies for work, for opportunities, right? So they moved to places like Kenya and Zimbabwe. And so, you know, they settled down there and they, they built homes there and communities there. And so that's where that's where my parents were raised. That's where my grandparents were raised was in Africa. Um, and then, of course, things politically changed, you know, as time went on in Africa. And so then my family was like, no, we're, we're, we're going to leave now and we're going to come to North America. But um, so technically still Indian, but I like to say Indian via Africa in the same way that some people are Indian via Fiji or Indian via the Caribbean. tell you about something pretty amazing that we stumbled upon. A little ways back, we interviewed this amazing dude, Kwame Bowen, and he shared with me after the episode that his mother is a poet. And what's awesome about that is that he has all of her writings and all her poems, but what he doesn't have is her reading them. That inspired Keith and I to then start recording videos for our daughters. And as we started recording those videos, we started running into the challenges, the challenges of where are we going to send them to our daughters? How are we going to get them to them? Where are we going to save them? Is it going to be Google Drive? Is it going to be OneDrive? And then along came GiftPod. It's an audio memory that you can record and give as a private podcast. What they're going to do is edit, add music, and produce the audio that you provide them into a professional podcast that you can share with your family members for any purpose. We use it for our daughters in the future. All right, so check it out. In the write-up for this podcast, you're going to see a link to GiftPod. If you use promo code MIC10, you're going to get a discount. And uh, leave some amazing memories for your friends, family, loved ones, maybe for yourself. What, why don't you time capsule this for yourself? I don't know. So check them out. Giveagiftpod.com. MIC10 promo code. Welcome back. I am your co-host Keith with my man Rodney and our guest today with Leona Maple. Welcome to the show, Leona. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. Now, Leona also goes by she or her is a South Asian queer intersectional feminist and diversity consultant. She is all about making space for her fellow BIMPOC folks and queer folks. Now, if you don't know BIMPOC, that's Black, Indigenous, Mixed, and People of Color. She does this through building communities and streamed shows aimed at growth in these marginalized communities, as well as through consulting work. Leona's first brush with intersectional feminism was in a Facebook group where other women of color educated each other on important concepts to reduce each other's emotional labor. And since then, she has eagerly researched and read countless articles on intersectionality, including works by Bell Hooks, Kimberlé Crenshaw, and W.E.B. Du Bois. Now, Leona's passion for building safe spaces for BIMPOC and similarly marginalized communities stems from experiencing the healing effects of these spaces herself in a BIMPOC-only group that would meet in person in a private room. Having an opportunity to let your guard down as a woman of color is incredibly rare. Now, Leona actively seeks out people of color and questions when this community is missing from a space. She is most proud of building a thriving BIMPOC community with Welcome to the Party, where Leona was a community discord moderator. 
and she now runs Vibrant Legends with the Dicey Amazons. In addition to her experience in inclusion and diversity, Leona has a communications background. She graduated from Simon Fraser University with a BA in communications in 2019. Her degree gave her opportunities to examine the crossroads of intersectionality, feminism, and communications. She has worked with magazines, marketing teams, nonprofits, and small businesses on a wide array of things such as press releases, marketing, event management, social media marketing, consulting, writing, and publishing. And as a member of her local South Asian community, Leona is intimately familiar with South Asian diaspora's cultural behaviors, Hinduism, Indian history and culture, and much more. Whew, got it. Got, got it. it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's let's just jump right into the deep end on a conversation here. Sure. So it's mentioned in your bio that one of the original concepts of the Facebook group that you were a part of was to reduce each other's emotional labor. Mm -hmm. Labor, because you're from Canada, spelled with a U. <laughs> I wrote it with a U. Labor. Just so we're all clear. That you're from um, we have been talking about this in various forms mm -hmm. um, quite a bit lately. We just did last week. So from your perspective, what is the emotional labor? Um, emotional labor, I, I always, it's always kind of been described to, as women's work, quote unquote. Um, it's, you know, it's the stuff that we don't get paid to do that's work anyways, you know, running around after the kids, you know, keeping track of everybody's calendar, you know, being there to support each other, you know, when your partner is having a down day, you know, um, all these things are emotional labor. Um, another form of emotional labor that people of color and other marginalized communities experience, um, is the emotional labor of having to explain stuff, you know, and explaining something that's really like exhausting to you, you know, like, um, you know, constantly having to talk about, you know, racism and, you know, prejudice acts that you've experienced, for example. Um, and I, I touch a lot on, on race and racism. That's kind of the touchstone that I use to talk about things and give examples. So if I keep coming to that, that's why. Um, but things like that, you know, and having to repeat yourself to, to, to people and be like, no, 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 this is this is not OK. This is not OK, you know, can become exhausting. So um, that Facebook group in particular, you know, was was trying to teach was honestly quite an aggressive space. It was a lot of very angry, tired women of color um, that were trying to teach each other to be good to each other. Right. And to not, you know, just come in and start asking questions, but do the labor and the research first so that you're not necessarily taking energy from another person right mm -hmm. so it was it was a really interesting experience because um as aggressive as it was you know and it, it made me really feel like I had to really learn quite quick um it was also very enlightening because I was able to understand so much about um black women's struggles and you know other South Asian women and our struggles and kind of see how different communities of people of color interact with each other and um, you know, you, you could kind of see how anti-blackness was um, within the, the South Asian women that were there. And you could see the model minority myth and how that kind of, you know, started to play play into that. So it wasn't the healthiest of spaces, but it was a very fascinating look um, because it was such a concentrated little um, way of seeing all of these different communities of people of color kind of all in the same space. Did... So you say it wasn't the healthiest of spaces, and I was thinking about the aggression. Mm -hmm. 
what do you like? I have some ideas, but what do you mm -hmm. think caused the like? Why was it such an aggressive space? Like what? What caused just, that? Yeah, I think it's just people are tired, and when people are tired, like this, and this is something that I keep coming across a lot, is that a lot of the time, marginalized folks are just tired, and you know they don't really have the space to be patient anymore. You know, and when you don't have that space to be patient and you're you're so exhausted with the world because it's so exhausting just trying to get through your day, you're not gonna have kindness for the next person who comes along and asks you a question because it's a question that you've heard a hundred times before. You're just gonna be like, why don't you get it? You know, like stop asking me. Like, you know, like it just it just comes out like that. And that's it. I've had it. That's it, right? Yeah. You're the straw. Yeah. It's um yeah, I mean that's that's kind of what I was thinking, and also mm -hmm. it's like not having those spaces in normal the normal world. Mm -hmm. Not, I mean, for me, I kind of sort of have it with my family. We talk about things as things arise, ish. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but like not having a normalized space to talk mm -hmm. about them. So like when you when I get in one, it's like, how mm -hmm. do I? What do I do with my hands? How do I? Yeah, I'm angry, and I can be angry here. So I'm just do I go all out, or am mm -hmm. I like? super positive or if i'm too positive how is that going to get looked at by the group mm -hmm. and it's, it is an inch so the, when you say the unhealthy like how did that balance out what was the i mean you mentioned some of it like the model minority yeah. myth and anti-black yeah. like what else um that was that was kind of it it was it was i was very aggressively educated essentially mm. and um you know if i if i did say something and toward you were expected to self-critique and apologize within the group and you know like it was if you didn't you know apologize you would get dogpiled on and you know just like it was a it was you know it was a space that i didn't stay in for very long because it was so terrifying to be a part of you know and it's like shit if i open my mouth like i might you know get all of these people being angry at me. And I don't know if I really want to do that. But the time that I did spend there, I, I kind of, you know, kept my mouth shut and just did a whole bunch of reading about what all these people were saying. And that part of it was really helpful. So I don't know if that group is still around. I don't know um, what, if it survived, but. What was the, so this it, like snap cancel culture, right? Like thinking mm -hmm. about the, the nuances of these conversations. What was the purpose for that group in of itself to exist in that way? It might not have been for you, but was it for everybody that joined? Yeah, I, I think the original intent of the group was women of color supporting each other, right? And so it was a place where women of color um, within the within the local community could ask each other whatever they wanted, you know, hey, I need recommendations for this. Hey, you know, I need this. But at the same time, there was a lot of this aggressive feminist education happening of like, hey, don't ask questions like this, or hey, don't do this, like, hey, don't do that. Um, so I, I think it had really good intentions, but it's in these spaces, you really have to be um, very mindful of how you organize and structure things, because um, it can get off the rails pretty quick, just because I think, um, you know, we kind of, it was kind of like Ronnie said, we, we kind of don't know what to do with ourselves in these spaces, where all of a sudden, you know, we don't have to be the way that everyone expects us to be in day-to-day -day life. We can kind of, you know, if we need to blow up that steam, we can, you know? Um, and so, you know, it, it becomes a kind of a beast of its own. And so, yeah, it was just a really interesting, interesting space. Do you think it, it's one of those, it's kind of like your, your significant others, the people you're closest to, your loved ones, they they are often the channel of your ire because you're at work all day and you're, you're frustrated with people that you work with and then all of a sudden you just take it out on on them because 
the safe space. Would would you equate it to that, or am I oversimplifying it? No, I, I think that's I think that's a pretty a pretty good uh, way of explaining it. I think it's because it's people that are like you. You feel like you can take it out on them, you know, and that's partially because you know of other things like, you know, how how people of color are raised, for example, and how we are so trained to critique each other. Um, you know, because, you know, we're always told to try and, you know, be, be better, be like this, be like that. Right. And so, you know, we are each other's harshest critics. Um, and so I, I saw a lot of that play out in that space. How Keith brought up cancel culture and the spaces <laughs> that you and I like, so where we met and mm-hmm. like in online space and in a discord similar to that one, but not the same mm-hmm. cancel culture is super, like we see it, we see people get canceled pretty frequently. How do you think about cancel culture? What mm-hmm. do you think of it? Ooh, is it even man. a thing? Is it like, how, like <laughs> all the way? Like, how do you think yeah, about it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, man. Um, y'all are speaking right to my communications major brain. So I'm going to try not to go too deep, too, too deep down the road. <laughs> deep as you need to. <laughs> um, I cancel culture, man. It's so like, it's such a like buzzword. It's like, oh, cancel yeah. culture. But look, what does that actually fucking mean? Um, I'm sorry. I don't know if I'm allowed to swear or not. No, you are absolutely <laughs> allowed to swear. Okay, all right. All right. Yeah, that's right. Watch, Watch your fuck. fucking mouth on our podcast. <laughs> I, honestly, what the hell is that supposed to mean? Like, I, I have no idea what cancel culture is really supposed to mean other than this idea of people getting canceled. And... I think some people do need to be canceled. Do I think it goes too far? Absolutely, because people dogpile and, you know, once you're canceled, you're canceled forever kind of a thing, right? And that never leaves you, right? Well, what if that person actively tries to make amends and is doing better? What happens then, you know? Um, are some people shitty and need to be canceled permanently? Absolutely, right? So for, for sure, that needs to happen. But I do think there is, um, particularly within like the tabletop RPG community, which is kind of where I come from, there is a lot of cancel culture and there is a lot of, um, you know, people that get really angry and, you know, a lot of dogpiling that happens. But at the same time, it's not, I, I don't want to invalidate that culture because you know what, there's a lot of people that are angry for really good reasons. And there's a lot of reasons why people are being called out and they're not unfounded, you know, especially when marginalized communities are speaking, um, it's so important to listen to that because it's not, it's not without reason. You know, people aren't getting canceled without reason. You know, if someone's calling me out, they're calling me out for a reason because I've done something wrong. Should I be canceled permanently? Depends how how bad I fucked up. You know, if I did something really awful, yeah, I should be probably canceled for the rest of my life. But you know, if I made a mistake and I'm willing to make amends and I'm willing to, you know, repair and do better, I think that's someone that deserves a second chance. So yeah. So lots of <laughs> things there. One of them, yeah. um, dogpiling. Can you what? How do you how do you describe dogpiling? I've seen it happen, but like, yeah. how do you describe it? Ah, oh, man. I think it's for me. I see it as like it's when people just kind of jump on each other on top of the bandwagon, and it's like you're a terrible person. You're a terrible person. Like you know, like how dare you? And it's just like you should have known better. And it's all these people kind of jumping in to kind of continue attacking you. Um, or, you know, to continue fighting. And it's it's one thing if someone is being obtuse and not understanding and not listening, but when someone is actively trying to listen and learn and people are still jumping on top of them, that's really hard for me to watch because that's just not right to me. How do you um, gauge apologies, sincerity, authenticity, mm-hmm. response? I, I've gone down the, the threads on these things mm-hmm. where places probably shouldn't be but let's say i'm there and so people are saying things <laughs> like uh you 
the apology, you, like there's no such thing as a good apology or that it's a forced, it's a canned forced apology, you know, and I've read a couple where I'm like, oh yeah, that seemed good. Like yeah. as, as good as it can be from a written statement, you know, yeah. I'm not, I can't see you. I don't get the body language and the intonation and all that kind of stuff. But it seems like the psychology of dog piles kind of a mob mentality mm-hmm. where it's, it, it's very witch hunty. At, at a point where it just flips a switch and it's like, well, we have a trial for you. And that trial is you're going to give an apology. Now, if you give an apology like this, you're a witch. And if you give an apology like this, you're a witch. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No. And it's, you know, whatever you do is never going to be enough for some people. That's something that I've learned. You know, um, it's inevitable that you're going to mess up. I think that's inevitable of everyone. You are gonna make, you are gonna mess up. You are gonna make mistakes, and so taking the time to stop, to listen, to learn, um, and to apologize uh, properly and do better are important. But it's never gonna be enough for everyone, right? So a lot of people are gonna be like, "That's not good enough," you know, and mm-hmm. that's that's kind of just how it is. You, mm-hmm. one of the things that I've learned is that you really can't please everyone. Thanks. Cancel culture is this funny thing. First, it's terribly oversimplified mm-hmm. and it's people are oversensitive to being canceled. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one thing for a celebrity to not be able to work because they've been canceled and they've tried to make amends and they, they get let back um, or don't get let back. Like that's, that's depends on what they get. Like that's real cancel culture in mm-hmm. my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The online cancel culture is this group that I want to be a part of has told me I can no longer be a part of them. And whether they accept you back or not, that's actually something that's happened forever. Yeah. Like that's part of being social. It's just now we're in this age of oh, you know, 700 people can do it in your little group versus yeah. five people at your high school that yeah. no longer welcome you into their group. And you have to go and become a better person. And 10 years later, you've got all your other new groups. Mm-hmm. It just works faster and it's bigger. And we just aren't psychologically meant to handle it. Yeah. But everybody's so afraid of it. Yeah. For for like weird, silly reasons. Yeah. <laughs> like it's, I'm afraid well, to think, be canceled. Because yeah, Naila just it's, said it's, it. It's like, you don't get canceled for nothing. Like, you have to do something. Sure. And it's got to be a component of it somewhat significant there is i will add to the online culture there is doxing people do get doxed and that does go into the canceling of their work and yeah that's awful yeah and all kinds of stuff and and again most of like the most of the cases i've seen of that have been people doing pretty extreme things now i'm i'm not saying that doxing is the right way to handle it but it's it's not somebody just saying something like it, it's 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 a it's a far more extreme case of something happening, um, mm-hmm. and somebody saying it. I think Keith, I think people see that. To your point, I think people see that happen, or they see a comedian get canceled for something they did, and they're like, "Oh God, I don't want to get canceled." Um, you said something though in all of that. Train to critique each other mm-hmm. as as marginalized community. Tell me, can you can you dig on that a little bit? I hadn't heard that before. Um, one of the things, so I'll give the example, uh, that's closest to me is so many times my mother and my grandmother have critiqued me for my weight, for my size, for the way I look, for my body hair, like just the most minute details. And it's just like, 
does anyone, so, so my whole thing is, does anyone actually really care? Well, the truth is that no one actually really cares about that. Like, you don't care if you, if I've got a speck of hair on my face, like that's not, you know, that's not the end of the world. A a, I'm a horrible person. Oh God, I've got sideburns. Good God forbid, you know? <laughs> um, but this is what would happen is that I would get critiqued for all of these little things and how they were unprofessional and unladylike and unacceptable and all this kind of shit. And I'm not alone in that, you know? And so the people that are closest to us um, have this real tendency to, to critique because we are trying to better ourselves to fit into that mold of whiteness you know, mm. there's this there's this mold that we are trying to fit that I don't think we'll ever fit into because we're not white, um, but that we are trying to achieve. We're trying to reach this acceptableness, this quote unquote, you know, hegemonic acceptableness of like, you know, oh, OK, like you're 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 a normal person because you're you're towing the line. You're you're doing all this stuff. Right. And so um, it's something that I I think happens to people of color amongst each other and between groups as well. Um, black women are known to critique each other, you know, things like that. So this is something that I think happens across different cultures is this level of what is acceptable and how do you be acceptable, but also don't be too white, you know, don't, don't start acting like a white person. Don't be too white, but also you need to be acceptable. Yeah. It's the carrot. It's the golden standard of like, um, I mean, look at, look at the Irish when they came here, like mm -hmm. they were super about black causes and then they got accepted as white and they're like, ah, nah, like, actually, we don't like you darkies. Like, you guys stay over there. Um, and and this is where the model minority myth kind of came from here, partially in the States. Like, if we can give you whiteness, then you've made it. That's the dismantling of like, well, why is white the default? Mm -hmm. And I would say like the other part of it from the black side is not only trying to make it to some semblance of whiteness, but trying to just fucking survive. Yeah. Like, you've got to be white enough to live, but mm -hmm. not too white. Like, mm -hmm. don't look at the white girls. Don't look at the white ladies. Like, that could get you killed, little black guy. Like, mm -hmm. too far enough back, even now. And and you've got to sound white, but not too white, because then you'll get crucified by, by crucified other people by that look people. like you. Yeah. Like, I think about... um the the phrase to spare the rod for black americans like that corporal punishment for children has been this whole thing of like well slaves used to get whipped mm -hmm. they used to get beat within inches of their life not killed but beat within inches of their life mm -hmm. and so parents were like well i'm gonna do it before you get you get it from them so that you don't get it from and now it's like i'm gonna do it before you get picked up by the police or you and end up in the system mm -hmm. and it's this thing that's had perpetuated mm -hmm. and it's a horrible way to raise a child like it is it does a lot of really horrible things but the psychology of it is rooted in like some really real messed up stuff yeah so it's are you first generation i am first generation born and raised in canada yeah born and raised in canada and your parents are from india so here's the funny thing. Um, yeah. Diaspora is um, my my parents are actually from Africa. So okay. colonial history, the way it works is is you know you had the British in India and 
um, you know, there were a lot of British colonies, Kenya, Zimbabwe, places like that. And so, you know, parts of my, my family ancestrally, you know, decided to move to different British colonies for work, for opportunities, right? So they moved to places like Kenya and Zimbabwe. And so, you know, they settled down there and they, they built homes there and communities there. And so that's where, that's where my parents were raised. That's where my grandparents were raised was in Africa. Um, and then of course things politically changed, you know, as time went on in Africa. And so then my family was like, no, we're, we're, we're going to leave now and we're going to come to North America. But um, so technically still Indian, but I like to say Indian via Africa in the same yeah. way that some people are Indian via Fiji or Indian via the Caribbean. Um, there's a lot of people that are Indian via the UK, for example. So there's, there's a lot of South Asians that are, that are still Indian, but that it's almost, it's funny because India isn't quite our, our home country because we're like once or twice removed, you know? Um, So, so for me, it's almost like being a Roman back in the day where the sun never set on the empire. And it's like from all over and be Roman. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Exactly. So it's interesting because home is home for me is Canada and going home for my parents and my grandparents is Africa. You know, and if you went a couple generations back, then home would be India, you know. But and so my family would visit India and stuff all and stuff like that. So they're familiar with it. But that wasn't where they were born and raised. So interesting. Mm-hmm. But essentially, that's, essentially, yes, I'm, I'm I'm Indian and that's that's my background. Man, that's complex. Um, <laughs> yeah. Colonialism. That's a whole that's a whole conversation. separate podcast. Yeah. Called colonialism and you. <laughs> How much? But really, um, I mean, sorry, real quick, Keith, that, that default whiteness yeah. thing we were just talking about, like yeah. colonialism, like mm-hmm. yeah, like, there's a reason for, and, yeah. and it's also fairly cultural mm-hmm. in, in, um, to to have that level of criticism. Mm-hmm. But then you add on top of that, like, what was it like for you growing up? It is weird. Um, it was so weird because I was this kid who was suddenly straddling these two massive cultures. I was living a North American world and living this North American life, but I'm in a South Asian household where I'm expected to be very South Asian. I'm expected to do things that are, you know, traditional to my religion and traditional to my culture. And those two things didn't line up all the time because, you know, you'd go to school with the Indian food and, you know, kids would be like, oh, what's that? Why does that smell? What is that? That looks weird, you know? And mm-hmm. all sorts of people of color, all kids of color would get that. Um, so it, it was definitely this weird thing. And it's it's interesting, it's been interesting to see um kind of this third culture happen of kids, kids that are born or that move away from their mother country, kind of I've seen happen um they a lot of North American South Asian kids have kind of created kids, I guess. I say kids in the I'm an adult, but I say kids in the sense of the fact that we grew up here. Um are now creating, you know, like rap music that mixes both South Asian culture and North American culture or, you know, movies and TV shows and all this kind of music and media content um, that really speaks to the fact that we live in these two worlds together. And so that we have, and that we have to kind of merge them. You know, we can't just live in one and, or just live in the other, you know, as much as the world tries to like pull us apart and be like, no, you have to be one or the other. No, we can't do that. We are both. And so it's been, that's been such a joy for me is to discover artists like Dolly to Dublin or artists that are, you know, creating stuff like that. Uh, that's, that's been my joy is, is discovering those artists because it 
really is so affirming to to have that to have something be like no it's okay for you to be both because I didn't have that growing up and it is it is so weird kind of growing up to kind of have to have to kind of toe the line and kind of you're always doing this dance of like back and forth between the two cultures and you know oh okay I, I can do that but I can't do that oh okay I can do this but I can't do that um so it's 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 weird I find it interesting as you talk about all of this and your parents where in Africa uh, my mom was born and raised in Zimbabwe and my dad was born and raised in Kenya you are closer to being African-American than Rodney. What? I mean. No, like when you think about. Right, so this, this, we, we in America talk a lot about. Like, like I'm American. You're black, you're African-American, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, but no, black American is a very different cultural history mm -hmm. than African-American. Yeah. Someone who has that African culture. Yeah. But then you because of colonialism and all these other things like you if i'm not mistaken you identify as hindu and indian mm -hmm. even though your family and grandparents so mm -hmm. you're direct mm -hmm. from africa right yeah. so but yeah. we in america wouldn't look at you and go you're african-american when yeah. in essence you would be right a like, good, from, a from good a, example one of my really good friends Tarek in college, he's Egyptian. Like his parents were born in Egypt. His grandparents, his great grandparents, he is Egyptian. Now, there's like a lot of Egyptians don't consider necessarily themselves African. There's a whole thing there. But like when he applied for loans for college, he could not get a loan as an African American. He's literally African American. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I can. This is weird. This is weird. Yeah. And it's, it's yeah. all the cultural boxes that we create. When you talk about default whiteness, that kind of defines all mm -hmm. of these other things as a tree. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's not, you know, black people going, well, I'm African-American. No, I'm African. You yeah. know, it's, it, it's a, literally a checkbox on census and it's literally mm -hmm. a checkbox on your doctor mm -hmm. forms and all of these other things. And yet it's so nuanced. And I, I mentioned that like, cause like, you are the example mm -hmm. of the flawed nature of that system. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like what, what do I, what, what do I check as my background? Like, you know, it's, it's interesting because yeah, you could technically call me African because that's where my parents were born and raised. But even in Africa, it was such an insulated sense of like, no, we are yeah. some Indian and protecting right. this Indian identity and culture and, and creating this like capsule of Indianness and, you know, having that as a part of, as a part of the culture in Africa, you know, it's actually influenced um, the language Swahili. Swahili has a has a Gujarati influence on the language mm. because I know that. Yeah, because so many um, so many Gujaratis settled in in Kenya and owned, you know, black people to work in their homes. You know, they were, you know, they were, they were the hired help. They were the people that were, you know, and so you have, you have people in, in Kenya, for example, that speak perfect Gujarati, like beautiful Gujarati. And it's just in, and you know, me going there and being like, oh, this person knows my language. Oh, that's kind of weird, you know, but that's colonialism too. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's, it's kind of like, that's, that's, a, that's mm -hmm. a product of colonialism is my people are not, you know, are not innocent. Like we, we did that too. And we are part of that. So 
you know, part of our language has become a part of Swahili. The word dawa, for example, is the Swahili word for medicine. Well, that's the Gujarati word for medicine too. Um, you know, so you have these, these things that kind of cross over. And it's funny because we try to kind of maintain this identity of, oh, we are still Indian, even though we're in Africa. You know, oh no, we still go back to India. Oh no, we're still Indian. You know, oh, even though I was born and raised here, I'm still Indian. You know, and it's the same thing for me. Oh, I'm, I was born and raised in Canada, but I'm still Indian. No, I'm Indo-Canadian, you know, and I've got this African background kind of in, the, in a cultural sense because I, I kind of I know like little bits and pieces of Swahili. I interact with the culture a little bit. I got I got kind of this blend of cultures going on in me, but I still identify as Indo-Canadian or Indian, you know, and it's, you it's weird. So Keith uh, kind of brought it up and, meant, and and it's in your bio, intersectionality. Like mm -hmm. you do a lot of work in intersectionality. Mm -hmm. Like what? Get, you I mean, are like getting... a walking embodiment of intersectionality. <laughs> are we well, all though? Kind of. No, are. I know. <laughs> yeah, we are. It's, but you, you yeah. study communication. It seems like your background fits you really, to Keith's point, it, it sets you up really well to understand this at a level that many may or may not. Yeah. Um, but like, what got you into it? It just made sense. It just made sense, you know? Um, you know, discovering, I, I, I mean, I guess my university years were kind of when I got to kind of discover and understand feminism and kind of understand um, all these concepts and being taught intersectional feminism in one of my courses and, you know, being able to do a class on race in the media, you know, and how races are portrayed in the media and, you know, doing a week every week on every single race and, or as many as we could fit in. Um, it just, it just made sense. You cannot divorce your gender from your race. You can't divorce your, your identities from who you are. These things all play out together. And so it just, when I learned that it just clicked. You know, mm. I cannot say that I am, you know, Can just you? South Asian. It doesn't work that way. I'm South Asian and I'm a woman. And that plays out differently from being South Asian and a man. You're kind of defining it, but this is not a common conversation. Like for you, it is. Mm. I I'll be honest, like it's not, it's not a common conversation right. for us. Right. Can you explain it? This is for the audience. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so first and foremost, I would be remiss if I did not state that uh, intersectionality was born of Black queer scholars. Um, so I've taken um, my learnings from a lot of Black women and a lot of Black queer scholars. And um, I feel like if I don't acknowledge that and I'm you know, trying to claim this as mine, I'm committing a crime. So I like to acknowledge that first and foremost because you know, I, I, I would not be doing this if these people mm -hmm. had not put this out into the world. Um, intersectionality is this concept of um, the fact that we all live at different intersections, right? Gender, race, sexual identity, um, physical ability or disability, all of these different things. And you can go really, really detailed with it, like class and, you know, country that you were born in, you know, where were you born and raised? Like, how much money do you have? All of these different things play out in different ways. So my intersections as a queer South Asian woman are different from, you know, Rodney's intersections of, you know, um, black American male, you know, and everyone's intersections are so different. And the joy of intersectionality is that it looks at all of these different intersections and it essentially goes, okay, well, we don't want a solution that just fits one type of woman. We don't want a solution that just helps white women. We want different solutions that are helping every kind of woman, 
you know, the trans women, the queer women, the South Asian women, the black women, how, what do we need to do in order to make tailored solutions that fit each nook and cranny, you know, how do we do that? Um, and to me, that's intersectionality, right? That's, that's really what that is. And so trying to, you know, help people understand and realize that, you know, there, there's so many things at play when it comes to marginalizations, um, you know, and that we need to take this intersectional approach to how we do things because one solution does not fit all, you know, and you're going to have to find ways of making it work for different communities and marginalizations. And I still don't know all of the answers, right? But all I can do is kind of try and try and, you know, help people learn. And that's really, that's what I do really is I just try to help. What are the major pushbacks you get for this concept and idea, which I, I, I think on the surface, like you're looking at it, like what, what's the harm in it? Um, I think um, white feminists are the pushback. You get a lot of hurt white feelings where mm, it's fragility. just like, yeah, white fragility because it's just like, oh, but, but I'm, I'm a feminist. Like, what do you, what do you mean? Like, I, I'm trying to do things for the betterment of everyone. What do you mean I'm doing things wrong? You know, or it's like this concept, this kind of pushback of like, Oh, I, I don't I don't think race matters. Oh, I don't I don't see that, you know, like, oh, that 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 doesn't matter anymore. You know, well, yes, it does. Yes, yes, all these things still matter. They all still play out. So those are kind of the the bigger ones that I that I get. But for the most part, I'm pretty lucky. A lot of the people that I come across are receptive and willing to listen. So I'm pretty lucky that way. The the doing things wrong is a an interesting conclusion that's often drawn. It's like it's not that you're doing it wrong. It's add to what you're doing so you do it better, right? Like I think that's ahead, my right. first uh, my first thought on the pushback is that it's human nature to simplify. Mm -hmm. yeah. And what you just described, like we need mm -hmm. different solutions for different people. Like that's not simple. That's mm -hmm. complex. And we're not built to, in general, think like that. We can, we're capable of it, but mm -hmm. it's kind of the lazy takes a lot of effort, yeah. which yeah. Adds, like leads to the question: How do we accommodate those different intersections? Mm -hmm. In so far as that we can't accommodate every individual, mm -hmm. like systems have to be put in place to accommodate. Like, how how does that work? So uh, let's say that I'm putting together uh, a book. Let's say I'm putting mm -hmm. together a tabletop RPG book. You know, I'm putting together a, a book. I've got all this beautiful art in it. I've got, you know, this fancy graphics and this fancy text. And I put up this beautiful published book. Well, that's great. But that only, that book can only be interacted with by a small percentage of people. Maybe it's the majority of people, but that's still a small percentage that you're missing. Um, mm -hmm. So what happens when you put out a printer friendly version or a version that's in a font that's easier to read or a version that's screen reader friendly so that people that you know are, cannot see with their eyes can still experience your book what happens mm. when you put out an audiobook what happens when you put out a braille version what happens when you do all these different things you know um and i've seen people do it and that's why i'm using that example is because i saw someone put out a, a game book and they created a screen a screen reader friendly version they created a printer friendly version you know they created all these different versions to make it as accessible as possible to as many different people as possible. You're never gonna be able to get everyone, you mm -hmm. know, uh, to try and uh, to try and strive for that, absolutely. But, you know, don't feel like you failed if you can't, you know, the more mm -hmm. you do, the more you try to include people, that still makes a difference. Um, but, you know, I've seen people do it and you, you, you create solutions. And, you know, that means sometimes that you're creating multiple versions of your book, 
but that's okay because, you know, now more people are able to enjoy it and interact with it, you know? The screen reader friendly version, they get to hear about the the art. They get to, you know, it gets described to them. So they're not losing out on anything. They're just interacting with it in a different way. Um, so it, it's, it's things like that. Or it's things like another really big example is policy, right? Um, when policy, like laws are made, but they're made to benefit just white people, that has that is a thing that has happened time and time again oh, in history goodness. is laws uh, that benefit white people that don't benefit other communities. In fact, they are intended to disproportionately negatively affect other communities exactly. for the benefit of white people. Exactly. And so that's another example of something where intersections weren't taken into consideration or it was probably, you know, it might've been maliciously, but sometimes even the best of intention people can create these policies that miss out on my, on these different marginalized communities. And, you know, all of a sudden, Oh, Hey, we put this in place. Hey, it's meant to help us. And you've got marginalized communities sitting there going, no, that really doesn't help us. But when you bring in all these other voices to the table, mm. all of a sudden you're creating something that works for a wider variety of people. Um, and the same thing happens in the workplace. When you have a diverse workplace, um, you suddenly have this much richer resource of people to call upon, to provide their knowledge, to provide their insight. And all of a sudden, whatever you're working together on as this diverse workplace becomes that much richer for it. Which, by the way, makes the stuff you make that much more marketable. Uh -huh. It's easier to get to different yeah, people. Yeah. Um, I, I, as you were talking about the tabletop role-playing book, I just in my head, I'm just like seeing all my D&D &D books. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, that was created by two white dudes who yeah. love Lord of the Rings. And like, which I love Lord of the Rings. Like, but you can very much tell who the book, it was, they wrote the book for them, which is cool. It's just, there's a lot of people left out of those original versions and some of the newer versions. And and now as people are starting to actively talk about this and 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 think about it, like what what's being created is more robust and mm -hmm. the stories change and the stories evolve and the people involved in those change. This concept really is identity. Mm -hmm. um, how do you identify? Mm -hmm. Like if, if, if I asked like, who are you? Like what, what is your identity? So I identify as a uh, South Asian queer able-bodied woman. And that's, that's the, that's the overarching plot of how I identify. So, so when, when I ask, so that identity, like that's how you live your life. Like that's how you see yourself. Yeah. Inside and out. Yeah. It's how do other people, I, how do other people identify you? I think that's a really interesting question. Yeah, I, I see myself as South Asian, queer, mostly able-bodied, and able ableism and dis, dis, disability is a, is a deeper conversation that can be dissected in a bunch of different ways. Because if you talk about mental health and chronic illness and all that kind of stuff, then, you know, all of a sudden, you know, the fact that I wear glasses means that I'm less able-bodied than someone else. You know, the fact that mm -hmm. I have ADHD means I'm less able-bodied than someone else. But I, for the most part, consider myself able-bodied because I'm not dealing with things like a chronic illness or a physical disability. So I don't feel right taking up that space. Mm -hmm. And I think most people would perceive me as able-bodied. So that's why I identify that way um, with regards to, uh, to disability and ability. Um, I think a lot of people see me as a South Asian woman, for sure. I don't think they see me as queer. 
I don't think they see me as, you know, um, this person who has so many, has so many different layers, you know, there's so much that I, that I don't share with people because I just like, I, I can't, you know, as a South Asian woman, like what I, you know, people are going to judge me for this. You know, I don't want to talk about the fact that I'm geeky. I don't want to talk about the fact that I'm polyamorous because people are going to look at me funny, you know, like it's, it's not normal. It's not common. So yeah, I think people, people look at me and they see a South Asian woman, they see, they see a Brown woman and they see a, they see a woman. And that's, that's all they got, right? Until I start talking about all this kind of stuff. And then they go, okay, you know, this person has a lot of other interesting things about them. But, yeah. yeah and, and I ask because I think what's interesting is more came out as you were answering this. <laughs> yeah. You like D&D. Like, these are, these are the things that make you up. Yeah. And I think what we often do is we project what we think of others to simplify. And it's like, okay, yeah. these are our groups, right? Yeah. We got a black male, got a South Asian uh, female, and a white male, and those we are now the 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 representatives of those of those ladies, right? Yeah. When you talk about intersectionality, it's really getting at the heart of like what is your identity, and how do we how do we accommodate people yeah. for for the world that they live in, not the world that I live in? Absolutely. Um, so you had said. Um, something earlier about making a difference in the world. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about intersectionality, your work there, your consulting mm -hmm. and, and all that work. I want to get into the really good side of it, but I want to get into the potentially dark side of it where like okay. it's hard. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of days where it's like you feel like you're scratching at a at like one of those little lotto scratcher things, mm -hmm. but it's like the size of the earth mm -hmm. and and you can't even get through it. Do you even feel like that ever? And then, like, how do you balance mm -hmm. the progress you're able to make and yeah. and feeling happy with making a difference? Absolutely. Um, I, I think I definitely feel like that some days. You know, it's very easy, I think, to become overwhelmed with how much work there is to do, you know, whether it's the environment or whether it's human rights or whatever it is. There's so much work that needs to be done all over the fucking planet, you know, and it's so easy to take all of that weight onto your own shoulders and be like, God, like, I need to do more. Well, no, you know, there's how many billions of us on this planet? 7.6. 7.6. I don't know. Um, but, you know, all of us need to pull our weight and we all can only do so much without burning ourselves out. So first of all, do what you can do, do with what is in front of you, right? Do, do the impact where you can, you can't fix everything. I can't fix the environment, but I can do my little bit, you know, I, that, but I don't focus on that because that's not my thing to change. What I focus on is race and racism in particular, because that's the thing that I feel most equipped to change. Um, Absolutely. Some days that I'm just like, there's so much to be done. And some days, you know, I get things from, from, from clients that are, you know, really well-meaning and they're like, oh, you know, I'd really love your feedback on this. And I read it and I just go, Jesus Christ, like, what am I reading? Holy shit. You know, and I have to get up and walk away from the computer and I go vent for like an hour <laughs> to someone else. And I'm like, you'll never believe what I'm reading. Oh, my God. Like, I can't believe they wrote this. You know, and I kind of because you do some sensitivity reading, right? Like you yeah, help people clean yeah. up what they've written and make sure that they're not just blatantly stepping on lines. Like it sounds like 
whatever you were just envisioning was yeah, doing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. sensitivity reading for anyone who doesn't know, essentially what I do is whatever project you're working on, whether it's a book, a game, a TV show, a podcast, whatever it might be, um, a sensitivity reader can look at whatever your work is and essentially look for things that are you know, red flags. Maybe it's homophobia, maybe it's transphobia, maybe it's racism, you know. Um, if you're dealing with writing a South Asian character, a South Asian sensitivity reader can really look at the nuances of that character and, um, you know, make sure that you're portraying something accurately, you know. Mm. But I've been in situations where I've just been like, oh God, like, no. But then I, you know, I step back from it and I go, okay, this person has come to me because they want to do better, you know. And so I tend to have a lot of compassion and care because I want to see my clients succeed. So I'm able to sit back down and it might take me a couple drafts, but I will write that email back and I'll be like, Hey, I see what you were trying to do. Or sometimes I email them back and I'm like, what is your intent here? What is your goal? You know, like, what are you, what are you yeah. trying to say? Tell me what you're yeah. trying to say and I'll help you get there. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> sometimes I do that. I'm sorry. I'm just seeing like the worst <laughs> case scenario. I'm like, I, I, I think you were trying to tell a story, but all I saw was just racist, racist, racist. Like, um, no, it's fun. Not trying to like, that's, that's, that's dope though. But honestly, I've been there where I've been like, I think you're trying to tell a story, but oh boy, that's not a story you want to yeah. tell. You yeah. know, and I had to be like, well, let's let's do this. Let's pivot this way, you know. And most of the time, you know, I've actually not most of the time, all the time I have people come back and they're like, oh, I'm really glad you said something like, you know, okay, I'm going to change it this way or I'm going to do this. And, you know, so it Take works out. Yeah. So you said the compassion. Yeah. Um. So I'm curious how you get there. Like what it, what's your process? But then mm -hmm. on the other side, how do you encourage people especially to pay you money, like to become a client, to share mm -hmm. stuff where they're possibly or probably off base and offending people. Because people mm -hmm. are, you know, we talked about cancel culture. People are so scared of this. Yeah. Yet you're, you got people paying you to like. Can, yeah, I, I, can I add to that specifically on the area of saying the wrong thing? Everybody's like, uh, you know, political correctness, the backlash on it, right? It's because, you know, I want to say what I want to say. How do you have the compassion to allow other people to say the wrong thing so you can help them get better. Because I think that piece that mm -hmm. people don't see when they're ready to say the wrong thing is that someone could have compassion for them, mm -hmm. right? And they're just like, ah, I'm just going to get judged. Absolutely. Yeah. I think a lot of my clients are actually nervous sometimes. They're like, oh, God, like, okay, here, here's my draft. I, I really hope I haven't messed up. But here's the thing is, is these clients are being vulnerable with me. You know, mm. they're, they're, and, and that's the biggest thing is I... I want you to make mistakes. I'm, I, I give you the space to be wrong and be politically incorrect and say the wrong stuff because I want to help guide you. You know, I'm so invested in my client's success because seeing them succeed is me succeeding as well because all of a sudden I put out a better portrayal into the world. I put out something that's respectful into the world, something that's not causing further harm. You know, I'm, you know, not besides the fact that, you know, a successful product that's released that has my name attached to it is, is you know, another piece on my resume. But besides that, you know, it's the actual human impact of it. The fact that someone can play this game and feel like they belong rather than feeling like they're, whatever they're interacting with is a caricature of their culture. Um, so that's, that's, that's a huge part of it for me. So I, I really do take the fact that a lot of my clients are vulnerable with me, you know, and they're giving me an opportunity to, to, to make, to, to learn from their mistakes. You know, they're coming to me because they want to be better, you know, and that's the thing, you know, I want to see my clients succeed and they want to be better. So they're coming to me and they're willing to pay for that. You know, they're really willing to put their money where their mouth is and be like, no, I, I want to do better. I want to make sure that I'm not messing up. So therefore I'm going to give you money so that you can take the time to read through this 
and, you know, help guide me, you know, and, and that's what I do. I'm never going to sit there and go to my clients. You fucked up. Like you, you suck. I, that's not what I do. You know, I'm there to be like, Hey, all right, this is what you've got going on. This is great. This is great. This is great. I love this. You know, I get so invested in my client's work because I'm just like, everyone's doing such cool shit. Um, but at the same time, I'll be like, and this is the stuff that I saw that was a red flag. You know, this is, this is what I'm worried about, but this is how I think you should do it instead. This will still get across your point. Um, so I try to really help shape and steer. And I've been in so many different projects in different capacities that I'm always constantly just trying to like mold whatever it is. Like, you know, if it's a final manuscript, okay, how can I shape that? All right. If it's just the beginnings of a project, how can I, how can I steer that? You know, um, there was something real quick you just said right there. Like, um, here's a red flag and here's an idea to still get your point across. I think that's the other issue for people. We know what we know. Yeah. And we, we're used to what we're used to. And like, this is the way I say it. This is the yeah. way I understand it. So yeah. if you're telling me that's wrong, there's no other way to say it. And it's like, no, no, actually, there's like lots of other yeah. ways to say yeah. it without trampling on other people. There, so basically, if you're afraid to say the wrong thing, mm-hmm. because you're surrounded by one person mm-hmm. that you know, who would criticize you, scorn you, judge you, hate you, and tell you you're an asshole. What you need is to realize that there are many people out there that won't do that. And mm-hmm. you need to give yourself exposure to more people. Absolutely. Like, don't, don't just have one black friend. Don't just have one Southeast, South Asian friend. Like, no yeah. people. Get to know people. Get to know people. Um, and have a yeah. sensitivity reader in your quarter. We're great. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> we'll help you with anything, man. We will literally help you with anything. I've worked on such a wide array of projects because anything can be sensitivity read, honestly. Yeah. Something that's that uh, I've noticed in the what I guess year and a half that I've known you and we've interacted, there is this humble confidence, and it's like a strong confidence, but it's not overbearing. It's just like oh, yeah. like you oh, show up no in a doubt. space and you just like own it. Yeah. And well, we just talked you. about you asking for business and asking and a- like asking being such an important thing. And I remember when we talked on the phone last, like you said the same thing, like you got to ask and. My question is, like, what would you credit that to in your life? Would it be family, your parents, like, just something you found as an adult? Like, where's that come from for you? Um, I think it's honestly, I, I love going to to events and hearing from successful people. Um, you know, like, panels of, like, women's workshops where there's a bunch of women on the panel. And they're like, this is what I did with my business and things like that. And a lot of times the advice that they give is just to ask. Um, so I think it's just a habit of successful people is just asking. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't well. know. I don't know, but I'm 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 very flattered. <laughs> Leona, thank you so much. This has been a long time coming. We will do it yeah. again. We'll do more. Absolutely. We will be we will be connected. Um Absolutely. now that this audience is yours, we always like to ask, what would you like to leave them with? Oh man. Um I'm gonna quote the last couple of lines from Desiderata by Max Ehrman. With all its sham, drudgery, and broken dreams, it is still a beautiful world. Be cheerful. Strive to be happy.